Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is the uh, interview with Sandy Monroe. Um, I'm here with Walker Reynolds uh, with 4.0 Solutions. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know Sandy Monroe, uh, what, first of all, what are you doing? Second of all, he has a really popular YouTube channel called Monroe Live and uh, where he, you know, tears down automobile, automobiles. Uh, talk, he had an interview with Elon Musk earlier this year that I watched a half a dozen times and uh, just a prolific uh, engineer and uh, content creator. So we're honored to have you on the, on the show today, Sandy. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for interviewing me. That's uh, very kind of you. Thank you. Awesome. So Sandy, um, have you, have you, do you know, have you done any background on us and like who we are and what we do and who our community is and all that kind of stuff? I have not. It's been like, uh, just a little bit of a whirlwind. <clears throat> I know what 4.0 is. Um, I'm assuming uh, that you're into, uh, uh, complete system, uh, architecture for, uh, for manufacturing. So, uh, I am familiar with the system. I'm familiar with the Siemens tools. So, yeah, I know that part, uh, but I did not do a background check on you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm assuming I'm not talking to an alien or something, yeah? <laughs> I'm a solutions architect myself, Walker Reynolds. I'm, I, my, systems integration has been my plan my entire life. So, uh, you know, I grew up in the Northeast in the 1980s um, during the manufa great manufacturing exodus. Um, I yeah. did my undergraduate work in sociology in the 90s, and I discovered that manufacturing didn't leave um, because of corporate greed. It, le it left because the Germans and the Japanese leveraged Industry 3.0 better than we did. And in order for us to catch up, we had to go chase cheap labor. So I crafted a plan. My first job was working in a salt mine as, you know, just got lucky, introduced to industrial automation after I graduated from college. And I sort of saw the path to how I could help revitalize manufacturing in the U.S. So over the course of the last 21, 22 years, I charted this path. I did um, the first half of my career working for the end user in manufacturing as a manufacturing engineer and as a controls engineer. And then I switched over to systems integration, wholly focused on industry 4.0. That is to help teach manufacturers how to leverage IIoT and industry 4.0 concepts to revitalize manufacturing in the United States. And so there are two, I own 49 companies, but there are two companies that I own that are at the forefront of this. One is, is Intellic Integration, which is the systems integration arm, and then 4.0 Solutions, which is what I'm here representing. 4.0 Solutions leads a large community, about 17,000 to 20,000 people, professionals globally um, in Industry 4.0. We manage an Industry 4.0 Discord server, which I think at this point has 3,000 to 5,000 members, something like that. And then we, if you go to iiot.university, that's where we train engineers and we train digital transformation professionals how to lead digital transformation initiatives. So the clients that we work with are all the, obviously the biggest manufacturers in the world in basically every vertical. Um, you know, we, we, one of the, our claims to fame is that we own a data set that is about 1100 global manufacturers that have been scored on 10 pillars in industry 4.0. Um, Tesla is right at the very top of that list. If you, if you look at the most digital manufacturers in the world, Tesla's numero uno. They're at the, you know, they're two plus standard deviations from the mean on the bell curve. Um, and, you know, <laughs> there's some 1,100 other companies within that bell curve. And we score manufacturers um, using a concept called the digital transformation maturity assessment, where we evaluate those organizations and then we basically chart a path. We were talking about a tier one automotive supplier just a minute ago that we're not, we can't talk about publicly. But they are one of the companies that we've done this for, and we're working with them in the Southeast and their division, their division in the Southeast on helping them digitally transform their organizations. The reason we asked to interview you to, to meet with you is, you know, you, you talk Tesla all the time. You're clearly a thought leader as it relates to EV manufacturing and auto manufacturing globally. You and I share many of the very same opinions. Um, I, I did, I did get a chance to, to watch a couple of your videos. Um, I, you know, I've known who you were for, uh, probably five years, give or take. 
um, and um, you know, your opinion is, is well respected within the industry. And so we have a podcast and this is what we're on right now where we're going to share with our community. So our community, 17 to 20,000 plus people will get a chance to watch this podcast. And, um, and so I'm going to, we kind of do this organic. I have a list of questions that I'm generally going to touch on, but I'm just going to do it organically and just kind of go through the list and we'll have a conversation. If you got anything you want to ask me, we'll just kind of do it that way. But what I want to start with is this. In your own words, can you tell me why Tesla is so awesome? <laughs> well, um, actually, you can sum that up real quick. Um, Tesla is awesome because they have an awesome leader. Without a good leader, um, you, uh, you really don't go anywhere. And so consequently, Elon Musk um, is that kind of awesome combination of charisma and um and intelligence that that it takes to make a huge company really successful henry ford the first was a good example of uh, somebody who really didn't have the right education certainly didn't have the right background but had uh that charisma and that drive and that intelligence to make things happen edison falls into the same category um, the problem is we don't see too many of those nowadays because they get educated into a, a different a different planet or different different zone. So you probably heard this a couple of times, um, but I, uh, I I obviously I was also in manufacturing, but I decided to take a course that you can get in Canada that you can't get in the United States, where you become for the most part an engineer. You take all the engineering courses but you take no humanities, no English, grammar, none of that. Uh, you're, you're interested in only the technology side. Now, they may not even have that anymore, but that's what I took. And so consequently, when you, when you just mentioned here that you uh, took psychology courses, I took those very late in life after people started uh, trying to strangle me. And I've found now that, um, that, that's literal, by the way, that's not a figurative speech. Um, but, but anyway, uh, I found now that without that, that third element, the ability to psychologically evaluate the situation and the people you're with, it, it makes it next to impossible. And that's, again, that's the third little leg in the stool here for, uh, for Elon Musk. He, he has that, that charm or charisma or whatever the hell you want to call it but the psychological background to know when he's pushed too far or maybe when it's time to, to change the subject or, or, uh, or any of the other things that he's done in the past that, that kind of make him uniquely different from, let's say, a Mary Barra or something. Hmm. I say this all the time. We, we, I, we shot a video, I don't know, maybe a month and a half ago or whatever, which was, um, you know, the, the future of industrial automation. We're really talking about how industrial, how the industrial automation business is constructed. That is OEMs, distributors, wholesalers, integrators, um, and how they work together with the end user. Well, not really with the end user, but you know, they. Oh, I, yeah, they do because they, they also have to have delivery. So you, you, you do the full gambit when you're, when you're looking at 4.0. Yeah. In that video, what we talked about was how industry is changing. And, and one of the challenges that legacy manufacturers have is that they're all run by accountants and human resource professionals. They yeah. are not run by technical professionals. And one of the things I tell people all the time, I've been in the room with Elon many, many times uh, with the Model S line back in 2013. And one of the things that stands out about Elon is he is an executive. You cannot bullshit. There, there's yeah. no engineers can't trick him yeah. into that, that they know what they're, what they're doing because he, I mean, he spends all of his time. He understands the science. He understands, um, you know, engineering best practices. And he probably, in most cases, he understands it better than the people who are working um, for him. Um, not the people in his immediate circle. Like one of the things he really yeah. realized is he, he surrounds himself with really, really, really smart people. Yeah. But um but the, the, the rank and file, he, he generally knows way more than the rank and file. And that's just so rare in manufacturing. You just don't see that 
executive leadership, understanding the technology better. So let me, let me ask you this. Um, well, before you do that, there's one thing you should know. So in the, um, in the early 80s, I went to Japan <clears throat> and I got a chance to talk to um, Eiji Toyota, the guy that owns Toyota, okay, or ran it. He knew how many spot welds there were in the rear compartment where the, uh, where the spare tire was going to sit. I was in a room with maybe 15 or 20 uh, executives. I was the lowest ranking person. I, I can't remember whether it was an eight or a nine, but I was definitely the lowest ranking person in the room. And they were asking philosophical questions or financial questions, things that didn't interest me at all. I was more interested in something that, uh, that I saw that I was really uh, intrigued with. And I asked, I said, this is not like the other questions, how many spot welds do you have in the rear trunk area? And I described it. And, and he came back and he, he, somebody else was going to answer, but they looked at him first. And he looked down the table because he sits in the center of the table. He looked down the table and he said, you know, 111 or something something like right off the top of his head. And then he gave me the diameter of the spot weld or the nugget. And then he, then he told me what the, uh, what, how many amps they were putting through each one of those things and how many gun shifts they had. And I'm sitting here going, are you kidding me? You just lost everybody in the room except for me. And the only reason I knew what was going on was because I used to work for a company that made that type of equipment, welding equipment. I was totally blown away. And, um, and because I asked that question, he actually invited me to dinner with, my, uh, with our um, interpreter and offered me a job, which foolishly I didn't take. But at one time, the Japanese were loaded with executives that were similar to what you'd find um, uh, with Elon Musk. And the same is true with Volkswagen or BMW or what have you. But they've all moved away. They've all moved away because, oh, no, no, you, you don't understand. You have to have an MBA. And that is, that is the downfall of North America. Actually, the downfall of, uh, of let's say, the, uh, the Europeans and the North Americans, because at the end of the day, they really hang their hat on it. And they always go back to the same thing. Oh, yeah, we, don't you remember the whiz kids? What people don't remember is that that was, the, uh, that was the turning point for quality. Quality went to hell in a handbasket because all you had to do is push the cars out the door. That's where the differential, that's where the difference lies. And if Tesla goes south, it'll be because somehow they push Elon out and they bring in some Harvard guy. And I'm telling you what, it'll flush like, like the best toilet on the planet. And that's, that's it. With you hundred percent. So I'm actually going to, I've got a question later on down in the list that I'm just going to jump to right now, which is this, I, I do want to make sure I circle back and talk about you, you specifically, you know, you, you know, your legacy and, and, you know, I want to talk about Sandy particularly. Um, but I, let's go ahead and jump back. Let's, let's talk about the industry stuff first. So you know, you and I are kindred spirits. I, you may not know this, but we are. I've watched and I've read enough of your stuff. I've I've read and uh, I've watched enough of your stuff to understand that we, you and I, think many of the same things. Um, and so I, I, I I've never asked this question of anyone before, uh, other than myself. And I'm going to ask you this: If there's one message that you personally, Sandy, could give to every manufacturer on the planet, or more specifically, every manufacturer in North America. What would that message be today? That is Sandy Monroe passing on a nugget of knowledge to all manufacturers, not just automotive. What would that, that nugget of knowledge be? Wow, there's a lot of nuggets that I can think of. I'm trying to sort through to figure out which one would be the most. I would suggest that um, the one nugget of knowledge is don't listen to the crowd. Um, Elon Musk did not listen to the crowd when he got involved with the Roadster. He didn't listen to the, cloud, uh, the crowd when he put up all of his charging systems. Henry Ford 
said, Henry Ford I said, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they'd say a faster horse. They wouldn't have said a car. Um, I think that brilliant people that have strongly held conviction on being doing things in the right fashion, the right way, and Henry Ford I was definitely convinced that the right way was uh, very moral and uh, geared toward the general population, and, um, and, but, it, but it had to make money. Not just money for him, but money for his employees because they were supposed to be looked at as not just a bunch of rabble that, uh, that you have to argue with continuously every day, but family. He was a big guy on family. Um, I talked to Elon Musk and, um, and we were talking about something and I can't remember exactly what it was, quality and something or other. And he said, hey, um, I gotta go. I, I have to go and put my kids to bed. I don't get too much of that from CEOs. I don't, I, don't see, uh, I don't see a lot of that. In fact, there's a joke at Ford that if you get to be a certain rank, e executive role, then Ford will pay off your, uh, pay off your, uh, uh, like your, your fees for getting a divorce because you're going to be married to the, to the top floor. And that's, that's the way it works. I mean, that, uh, that, that's kind of the difference between what Elon Musk is looking at and the way that I've seen and read about other great leaders from that time frame, uh, they, they really are devoted to the people that are making them the money, the cars and whatnot. And uh, when they change, when they move away from that, that focus of morality and, um, and, um, and the passion of getting the job done, that's when everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Mission, right? I mean, if Elon Musk, if, if, I, if someone was going to ask me to distill Elon Musk down to one word that, I mean, it would be hard to do, but I would distill him down to the word mission. Um, we, I was consulting for um, one of Ford's partners, um, uh, an EV company that's one of Ford's partners, and, and uh, they were asking us to help them architect their Industry 4.0 um, roadmap, um, and they were under incredible pressure from their investors to become a digital company quickly. Um, their manufacturing operations digital quickly. And one of the things that I discovered was that there was a lot of people, former Tesla employees that were working for this, this, this customer. And when I, when I walked, when I walked away from that, that call, um, my team, we were debriefing afterwards and my team said, man, you know, I've never seen a company that had so many former Tesla employees. And I said, yeah, that's not a good thing. Because if there's anything that I've learned about Elon Musk is he doesn't let his A players leave. He, his A players stay because of the mission. They, they don't stay for the money. And, they don't, and although they've all become very wealthy, they don't stay for the money. They don't stay for the Tesla brand name. They stay because of the mission. You don't, you don't, change, you don't change sides in a war. You don't, yeah. rank and file don't, you don't move from the ally, you know, from the allies to the axis mid-war. That isn't what happens. And, and that means if you're a former Tesla employee working for another EV company, you're probably, and I don't want to, I want to bring, I'm not going to paint with a completely broad brush, but the likelihood that you're one of the A players who was bought into Elon's mission, hook, line, and sinker is pretty low. Um, and, you know, based on my experience. And I, I, I walked away from that saying, you know, Elon has every person in his organization bought into the mission that this company is going to further um, humanity towards sustainability. That is, everyone is bought in hook, line, and sinker. And I mean that, I don't mean that pejoratively. Um, let, me, let me ask you this. Your experience obviously is an automotive, right? You're, you know, you're a person wow. that people listen you're you're per, you're a person who lis people listen to specifically in automotive. Obviously, you, you have a broad experience, but you know you're a former Ford guy, right? You you had a relationship with GM Monroe Consulting's. I know that you guys consult for many different verticals, but in specifically in the automotive industry, you are a guy people listen to, um, and and they listen to you outside of automotive as well. But <clears throat> specifically as it relates to automotive, 
because I believe the automotive industry has fundamentally changed. There are many companies, most of the companies that we know of are not going to be around a decade from now, certainly not in, in making cars, although they think they are, they, they won't be. Um, but let me ask you this. What is the difference for you between an auto manufacturer who gets it, that gets the, understands what's happening over the next 10 or 12 years, and one who doesn't? What is the fundamental difference besides leadership, which we could say they've got the right leadership, those who get it? What is the fundamental difference between the auto manufacturer who gets how the auto industry is, gonna, is changed and will change over the next 10 to 12 years and one who doesn't? Um, it's much easier to go in the other direction. Why is it that the ones who aren't getting it um, in it? Okay, so again, I go back to E.G. Toyota. Um, one of the guys um, that, uh, that I was, same trip actually, one of the executives said, um, asked the question, he said, um, we have um, a five-year plan um, um, and we'd be happy to show it to you if you come to, uh, to Dearborn. What, how many years do you look ahead? And E.G. said, I look 100 years ahead. And the guy started laughing. And he said, 100 years? My God, you'll be dead. Your grandchildren might be dead. Why in the world would you look that far? And E.G. said something in Japanese. And the interpreter was sitting next to me. Uh, her name was uh, Kaneko. And I turned around to Kaneko and I said, what did he just say? Oh, um, it doesn't matter. I said, I'd really like to know. And he said, where there's arrogance, there's opportunity. Where there's arrogance. And the reason that some guys get ahead and some don't, it's normally because of arrogance. That, that arrogant uh, feeling that they have that says, oh, I'm going to be right because I'm always right and I'm doing exactly what the textbook tells me. There's no moving when you have arrogance. Once you're arrogant, you're done. Hitler was in his bunker trying to plan, you know, the next Reich. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that tears the company down. And actually, if you look in some of the uh, different things that are going on right now, there's a lot of people talking about Mary Barra. I, I, don't, I don't know her. Uh, my wife used to double date with her, but, uh, but I, I don't know her at all, hardly. And, um, but I do know one thing, uh, when, when someone like, uh, <laughs> um, well, maybe she's drilling more holes in it, but the, the deal is, is that she said some stuff uh, about GM leading the way and whatnot, that's arrogance, everybody laughed, but, but on the other hand, she refuses to even mention Tesla or Elon Musk's name. Um, that's disrespectful, but that truly is an arrogant attribute that, um, um, you know, Alex from E for Electric, do you know him? Yeah. Okay. He interviewed me last night and, uh, and we were talking about that very thing. He was talking about it. And I think that really what you have to do is not how come this guy is successful because there's probably too many things to try and put into place, but you can certainly nail you can certainly nail um, uh, why the number one reason why people fail. It's an arrogance that gets in the way of every decision that you have to make. And, and when you're in that kind of a situation where, well, we always do it this way and that's the way we're going to do it. And that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And this guy doesn't know what he's talking about because we're just going to go blah, blah, blah. We're great and we've always been great and we're going to be great again and blah, all these things, okay? Instead of saying, okay, what are we doing wrong? How are we going to fix this? Where, where are we going to get the right people to make this happen? Who's, these are the kinds of things. And then honoring, honoring the enemy. Uh, that's Sun Tzu, right? Uh, honor the enemy because you don't know what he's got stuck up his sleeve. That's the other thing that, uh, that I found with, uh, with great generals or leaders in industry. They, they're, they're, they're pensive. They think about stuff. They... Um, they ponder for a while. They, um, um, what's his name? General um, Colin Powell. General Colin Powell said, plan, 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 execute. And that's, that's kind of the difference between 
a general that knows what the hell he's doing, like Colin Powell or like um, like uh, um, uh, General Sun Tzu, and somebody who doesn't. And Marcus Marcus Aurelius said that you can't learn something you think you already know. And yeah. one of the things you know, working with all of the you know the the legacy automotive manufacturers, one of the things that stands out is um, they we call it we describe it as the the albatross of success. That uh, one of the first things that I have to tell yeah. legacy manufacturers is your success two decades ago or three decades ago doesn't mean a friggin' thing in the market today. And right. and and you and when as we talk about industry 4.0 and as we talk about digital transformation. The first thing I need you to do is forget everything you know about manufacturing. You have to forget yeah. everything you know about manufacturing and start from scratch. What would you build today if you started building it today? One of the first things that Elon Musk learned, the, he'll tell you the, the biggest mistake he made initially with Tesla was we tried to use the existing um, automotive supply chain. We, we, uh, and, then we, and then we used too many robots. We yeah. tried to use too, too many, the existing supply chain and too many robots. And when they made the decision, when they made the decision to create a Tesla ecosystem, which we're going to talk about here in a minute and why, what I believe the actual differentiator is for Tesla, when they made the decision to create the Tesla digital ecosystem, including supply chain, that is when the, the, the tide changed. I mean, and and I'm really surprised that Toyota didn't pick up on this and that they made the strategic mistake in 2018 to break apart that relationship. But I mean, they've, they've obviously admitted their mistake and come back to the table, but, but there was such a huge strategic mistake on Toyota's part in 2018. But, yep, go ahead. Yeah. You, you have to remember, um, Toyota is not run by EG anymore. It's by the grandson. And what's the grandson? Oh. MBA. And how is he thinking? How do we make money on every component? How do we make it cheaper? How do we stay the course? How do we? It's not the same. Show me a company. His claim to fame in his mind, his claim to fame is Toyota is not going to be a, well, not that Toyota is not going to be an automotive manufacturer, but his, his focus is Toyota AI Ventures. He, his focus is expanding the his fingers out into um the the supply chain for Toyota proper and that is that is his his singular focus if you look at these whatever 70 or 80 companies they've invested in that are all digital companies yeah. that on the industrial side that that's all he's thinking about and yeah to your point you can tell that Toyota's run by MBAs and accountants at this point right now right. um and not not transformative leaders which Brings me to Ford. I want to ask you this question oh. about Ford. Um, Ford is clearly the most innovative of the big three. And, and, and big, big three is a misnomer now because it's not really the big two. three. But, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but why is Ford, in your opinion, why is Ford the most innovative of the big three? What, I mean, Ford is the only of the legacy companies that never filed for bankruptcy. What is it that differentiates, differentiates Ford from the other two? Why are they the most innovative, in your opinion? I think it was because Alan Mulally went to work there. Now, you mentioned that, you know, I spent a lot of time in the automotive, but perhaps you don't know, um, we, helped, um, we helped Boeing um, quite a bit with the 787, the 767, the 777, and some of the other attributes that they picked up when they bought um, McDonnell Douglas or acquired McDonnell Douglas. Alan Mulally is the kind of uh, leader that you find that he has a lot of the same traits as, as Elon Musk. People will follow him off the edge of a cliff because he has a passion that's impossible to, uh, to ignore. He put in place the, uh, the aluminum pickup truck. Okay, General Motors threw all kinds of rocks at it and literally and poked holes in the, in the back end. See, that's what happens. When, but by the same token, if you put those same sharp chunks of flint and drop them into the back of a steel pickup truck, they do the same damage. Elon and, um, or Alan, I should say, 
and Elon have a good deal in common. And I think what happened was during the time that he was there with another guy named Paul Mascarenas, who was the vice president of engineering worldwide, they, they did skunk works kinds of operations to, to try and put Ford into a good path. Now, prior to, prior to the, uh, the bank meltdown, Ford was in the worst shape of all the different car companies. And I was uh, talking with Alan because Alan, as soon as he came there, he saw the first car that, that was given to him and he said, I'm no car guy, but this doesn't look right. And he sent that to us and we found about $2,200 on the front seat uh, by redesigning it. Um, and actually got rid of, I don't know, uh, three or four dozen no-build kind of scenarios because the car hadn't really been scrubbed. And, and so anyway, he asked us to do those kinds of things. But while he was getting that done, he was looking around at his organization and he predicted that something nasty was going to happen. He mortgaged everything, everything, including the Blue Oval, so that if something happened, he would be protected. And everybody thought that that was a stupid move. And then the banks melted. And who had the money and who didn't? And who could get even more money Whereas the other guys were kind of like, it's the only, your only option is bankruptcy. I think that, <clears throat> I don't think that the Ford family gave Alan Mulally nearly enough credit. And I know, I know for a fact that, like I say, some of those skunk works that were, were produced, they paid big dividends. They're paying big dividends now. There's no such thing as somebody making a decision yesterday that, that shows up in the, uh, you know, in the marketplace today. It takes 15 years to move, uh, to move that elephant. And, uh, and I think what he put in place really made a huge difference. So if I had one thing to say, I would say that that's probably one of the, uh, one of the he put the right people in positions. He had the right skunk works. They, uh, they knew that there was going to, two things that, uh, that they knew. Um, or he knew. One was that uh, the cars are going to go electric and at the, the last time I had talked to him he was looking at about 2040, 2045 and that's when nobody was talking about electric vehicles and Elon and Tesla were, weren't even around. And the other thing that, uh, that he knew was going to happen and that's VTOLs, vertical takeoff machines. And um, I don't know if Ford's in it but my guess is that they probably are and one of these days, they, they, you know, they'll drag one of these things out of, a, out, of, out of a garage and it'll pop up and fly around. And that's the way Ford is run. They're not run to the point, say, you walk out there, pound your chest, point at something, and then the damn thing fails or burns up or whatever, blows up or that, that kind of stuff. So, or it doesn't perform like some of the European companies. So let me ask you this. So transportation's changing, you know, the future of transportation in, in my, well, the future in manufacturing, in my opinion, is, is, uh, you know, um, contract manufacturing, manufacturing as a service, I think is going to, will be a, um, is, is going to play a huge role outside of tooling. I play manufacturing as service is going to play a huge role in the manufacturing supply chain. Um, just a decade from now it's, it, you know, the market share, and manufacturing as a service continues to double year over year. Um, and it'll have a, a, a huge impact a decade from now, right? So manufacturing as itself is changing and transportation is changing. One of the things that I've learned, you know, purchasing my first Tesla, actually I have a Model S on the way. So I've got a Model 3 and I've got a Model S on the way. Some of the things that I learned about Tesla's value proposition in the market is... It, it, it's not brand. It is, it isn't, um, the fact that they were first to the electric vehicle because obviously they weren't. Um, and it's not that they did it best, um, because there were, you know, the quality issues were well documented and you guys played a huge role in, in actually helping to improve those quality issues specifically around <clears throat> paint and, and the doors. But, 
the uh, on the Model 3, Tesla created an ecosystem. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, from my iPhone, I can, my Model 3 and my Model S are part of the same environment. I can compare my two cars within my Tesla app. I can look at where they are located anywhere in the world. I, they get updated in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping. Um, everybody says the same thing. When I get into my Tesla, and when every time right, people get in my car for the very first time, they go, this is like being in a rocket ship. And they can't believe how few buttons there are and how everything is through the heads-up display. And when I start to explain to them the amount of data that Tesla collects from all the cars on the road to improve the software, it really blows their mind, yeah. especially if they work in automotive to begin with, right? So let me ask you this. Tesla's changed the game, obviously, not just in automotive, but in manufacturing proper, right? But you have all these legacy manufacturers out there, these legacy automotive manufacturers out there. Are any of them going to survive? And if so, who, in your opinion? Okay, legacy manufacturers. I believe that, yeah, right. Okay, I believe that almost all of them will survive, but they'll be very tiny. Um, I think that what you're going to do is you're going to find Tesla's going to be pretty dominant. I think Ford may be able to keep some of its market share but i think oh in trucks and yeah if they the, the, their biggest the biggest claim to fame for ford or the biggest uh, advantage that ford has over everybody else is the lightning holy mackerel okay we talked a little bit about my background i didn't talk about the the shitty life i had when i was trying to do construction that really sucks I really hated it. Dragging around a, uh, a compressor or a generator compressor and uh, no power and on and on and on and eating hot sandwiches that got mayonnaise on them. I can't begin to tell you uh, how nasty uh, things can possibly be. Ford coming out with a lightning, holy mackerel. Corey and I crawled all over that thing. I crawled under it, we both crawled under it to have a look at how they did what they did to give a ride that was so nice. That, that truck's brilliant. That is what's gonna hold them in place. If the Mustang gets better um, um, self-driving features, that'll, that'll hang around. Um, they've, got, they've got some other things that they're gonna have to do, but it's not like, it's not like they have an albatross hanging around their neck like the Bolt or the Volt, or any of the other products. And they certainly didn't bet on a, 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 a terrible bet on the, on the Hummer. And quite frankly, when I looked at the, I was, we were doing, we were doing, uh, we were looking at the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, Mustang and the uh, ID4 at the same time. And there was no comparison. Hands down, Ford, Ford had a much, much better product. That's the kind of stuff that's going to keep them at least as a viable name. Everybody else, I don't know. Stellantis has a lot of electric vehicles, but mostly they're in Europe, and they're really teeny tiny. Um, I don't know what they're going to do when they come here, and uh, I'm almost positive that the Chrysler badge is going to just disappear in favor of... Um, a French badge. Um, so, um, uh, like Citroën, it'll probably be Citroën. Anyway, these kinds of things will maybe keep them alive, but the bigger companies that I see coming up, uh, I think a, a BYD is definitely one. BYD has already planted itself in California making buses. Uh, everybody is buying their batteries. Um, I think that, um, I think that, um, uh, Apple will probably come out with a car. It's not going to be a big one. It's not going to be like uh, like a GM or a Ford or something like that. But it'll have a it'll have a presence. But I think that there's going to be um, smaller new entry kinds of vehicles that are are going to be uh, are, are going to come to to fruition. And I believe that there's going to be a situation where 
one or two of these smaller companies that are out there right now, EV companies, they're going to become a little more powerful than the rest, and they're going to swallow them up and turn it into like a General Motors. So I, I, you and I are in total agreement on Apple, by the way. I, I yeah. Zach and I were just talking about this earlier. You know, if we look at market share 15 years from today in electric vehicles, the thing that we have to understand is that transportation is changing. Okay. Yeah. Um, 15 years from now, I'm going to be in my early 60s. And, I, and I'm in the last generation of people who believe that everyone needs to have their own car. Okay. The generation behind me, they don't think that way, right? A car doesn't symbolize freedom for millennials. It doesn't symbolize freedom. So transportation as a service will become the standard. Um, that doesn't mean it'll be exclusive, but transportation as a service will become the standard. And full self-driving, specifically Tesla's technology, which no question Tesla is going to um, license the technology or just give it away. Uh, no question they're going to do that. Um, full self-driving is going to make it possible for us to just call a car and that car is going to pull into the driveway and I don't have to have some strange guy driving it. And I'm just going to hop in the car and it's going to take me to where I want to go. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to leave it. And that is the future of transportation as it relates, especially for, for urbanites. Um, what's most important to understand in my opinion is, is the importance of the digital ecosystem to products. One of the beautiful things about Tesla is that Elon Musk doesn't approach the vehicle as a product he's selling. He really treats it as an application he's selling. And if you take a step back and you look at it as an app in a digital ecosystem that's got wheels, that's what Tesla vehicles are. And Apple has the biggest digital ecosystem in the world. And so what I ultimately believe is going to happen is I don't think Apple's going to try and develop a car from the ground up. I think if they do, they're insane. They're great at manufacturing, but they really would be better off gobbling up one of these EV companies that have already done the first 60% of the work. Mm -hmm. I believe Apple's going to have a much bigger piece of the, the pie uh, 12 to 15 years from now. It's going to, I, and I would not be the yeah. least bit surprised if it's Tesla one, Apple two, and, and then everybody else. Um, I think the mm -hmm. big unknown is China, all of, all of the various, all of the various manufacturers, China's going to be able to manufacture cars a lot cheaper. The question is, are they going to be selling to their own market? Or are they going to be selling globally? You know, can they, will they be able to make inroads into, uh, Europe and in the United States when, when there's a lack of trust in the Chinese government without some type of social revolution, um, or political revolution. So those are some, you know, un, um, you know, un, uh, unanswered questions. But I, I, I'm in agreement with you 100%. I absolutely believe Apple is going to be, uh, and I have no problem putting money on it, that Apple is going to become a major player in the EV market simply because they've got the digital ecosystem that everyone needs. Everyone else has to build it. Everyone else has to build it along with manu mastering the art of manufacturing cars. And I think it's way harder to build the digital ecosystem than it is to build cars. Um, right. with, with that, let me ask you this. So, it, you know, your legacy, Sandy, I mean, you're, you know, when I'm, uh, you know, here in, you know, another decade and a half from now, when I'm hopefully in the spot you're in, um, you know, I'll be thinking about my legacy. And so let me ask you this, you know, what is your legacy or what do you want your legacy, Sandy Monroe's legacy to be when, when, uh, when you're sitting, sipping coconut water on the beach, what is it you want people to be saying about Sandy? Um, you know, when it is you decide to retire. Uh, well, Dr. Deming said retire and die. So, um, and he did, uh, he did work right until the end. Like I had dinner with him maybe a month or so before he died and he was still pretty active at 93 or 94. I can't remember. Um, so retiring is not on my list of things to do right now. Um, you know, I'm a relatively simple guy. Uh, I grew up poor. I, uh, I started working for a living at nine, picking apples or walnuts or any other damn thing, anything to make a buck. And, um, I, I don't really need to have a statue or, uh, or a big plaque or something. 
my legacy would be is, you know, Sandy Monroe got up every day, went to work, and did things in a fair and equitable way. He had morals and, and, uh, and he stuck by them. Um, you know, told the truth and paid the bills and did his best to stay away from the IRS. So that would be kind of like, that would sum it up. That's the best I could come up with. A solid, a solid <laughs> stoic answer. Marcus Aurelius or Seneca would be very proud of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, believe it or not, I'm old, but I don't. Really, I I didn't hang around with those guys. <laughs> uh, let me let me follow it up with this. The most important you've done a lot in your career. In your opinion, what's the most important thing you've done in your career? Most important thing I've ever done in my career. Well, uh, there's a lot of answers to that. Um, there's different level. Everybody has different levels. Bringing uh, bringing new life into the uh, into the world. Uh, I think that would have to be the number one thing. Um, number one thing. You're asking questions I never, uh, you, yes, you're, I was tricked. <laughs> you're asking psychological questions and I was not prepared for. I, I, you know, I've done a lot of things that I'm really happy about. One of the things, actually, if, if we're looking at a project, probably the project I liked the best was an intravenous pump that, uh, that was used for uh, neonatal. Um, and because up till that point in time, um, you, you could get uh, an intravenous pump strapped onto your pre, prenatal kid or uh, postnatal kid, but, um, but it, um, it, you signed a piece of paper to say that the kid's going to die maybe because so, we can't meter the fluid out fine enough. Uh, when we came up with that, that new intravenous pump, that was a big deal for me. I, I really felt proud about that because my son, when he was growing up, had to uh, get, he was sick a lot. And, um, and he had to have a pump put on. And every time I signed that piece of paper, I thought, you know what, this could be a death sentence. So uh, I got rid of uh, a little stress, if you like, from, uh, uh, from, that, from that project. Um, how did that I come about? How did how did that uh, you know how how did how did you get involved in that? Company was going out of business. They um, they had a they had a flat line. Um, they said oh, I asked them. I said, well, where are you in the industry? And they showed me a graph, and it just went like that. And I said, is that your production rate? Oh uh, no, no, that's our revenue stream. Show me your production rate. They didn't really look, again, MBAs, they didn't look at it as, hey, we're going out of business. They said, no, see, look, we've got a steady flow of, of cash here. Well, all he did was just keep raising the rates for the price, or the price of the, of the product, um, and they could get it. In some cases, uh, some hospitals, that's all they could do is buy that thing because, you know, getting into service and stuff like that was a real big issue. So, um, so when I went in there, um, I said, well, you're, you're going out of business. And then one of the clowns said that they were going to try and win the Malcolm Baldridge Award. And I said, the only award you're going to get here is like a stupid guy of the afternoon. There's no way that this, you're going to, you can't win anything here. So, uh, so anyway, we started looking at different things, different attributes. And I was doing a lot of manufacturing. And uh, I walked around and I said, this is a shit show. You've got, you've got no chance of, uh, of, of making one product correctly here. And sure enough, when I got to the end of the line and I checked it out, there was no first time capability, zero, none. It was just a too difficult a product. So we got into um, a little workshop. We do something called Lean Design where we reduce the number of parts and improve the manufacturability of the product and add features and usually come up with and always come up with less cost, less hours, more capability for going into automation and things like that. Well, we went into this one and I had just come from a, a, a DOD kind of a project and I knew how to meter 
fluids, any kind of fluid, um, at any temperature at a much finer rate. So we took that information and plunked it into a new design. And, and I asked, I, I talked to the nurses and whatnot about, you know, what's going on? What, what do you like or not like about this pump? And, uh, and they told me everything I needed to know. And I said, your pump's too heavy. Um, it doesn't work all the time. Every time it goes into um, uh, for steaming, for cleaning, it comes back and uh, a lot of times the thing freezes and breaks. So I got a hold of one, I looked inside, everything's made out of stainless steel. Yeah, that's great, but that's not the, that don't like, it doesn't like steam. Why, why are you doing it like this? Why don't you make it out of plastic? Oh no, plastic, oh no, no one will want that. The pump became, it be, we, we made it out of plastic because when you take that and clean it, guess what? It loves the steam, it's great. It, they, it's there for, uh, it, it loves it. It's like uh, taking a hot shower. It gets clean and uh, the, uh, the plastics become more lubrous. It, it worked out just perfectly, right? And then we got rid of things that the, the nurses hated, the doors on the front. They blew, there was no doors left anymore, we got rid of that. We added a new feature for, uh, for how the, how the, uh, uh, the, the uh, the, the product was going to milk. It, it, uses a, it uses a peristaltic pump, so it's like milking a cow. And uh, we put that in, and all kinds of things dropped the price by, I think it was like 50%, but that was the cost, I should say. But well, we raised the price because it was so much better. It had, it had other features. And the lawyer said, well, they didn't really want to do it because they didn't want anything to do with you know, uh, somebody, if some kid dies, you just put a one down and you're just running zeros until, until they tell you to stop. Um, anyway, at the end of the day, the thing took off. We filled up the factory. Then we built a second factory. Then we went to uh, Japan and put a factory up there. Then we put a factory in Ireland. And then we put, I, I don't remember what, we, the factories went up like crazy. We were dominating the marketplace. Pretty much clobbered everybody. Nobody... Nobody saw that coming, and having that, that one saying it's neonatal, uh, that immediately uh, uh, said everybody, they didn't care about the, what was sitting in their warehouses. This was uh, a for sure way of, of making sure that anybody that gets strapped to this thing is going gonna, is gonna to survive, and, and uh, metering is going to be dead nuts accurate, so that, that's kind of... That was one of my favorite things. So I, I, like I say, I've saved cars or helped, our company has helped save cars. The, uh, the Camaro Firebird, uh, the, uh, the, the Cadillac uh, Stream, um, Ford's, uh, a couple of Ford vehicles, uh, Chrysler's, like uh, the, uh, the new uh, Ram uh, that won luxury vehicle of the year. Uh, Monroe had a lot to do with that. So we, you know, those are great things, but nothing that really touched me as much as uh, for product, if you want to talk about a product, as that, uh, that, uh, that in intravenous pump. Awesome. So be before, before I, uh, we close it, well, I'll ask you what's next for Sandy. Um, Zach wants to chime in here real quick. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as a subscriber of Monroe Live, I, uh, I, I mean, I really like to think that uh, one of the biggest impacts you've had on the industry is Monroe Live and, uh, you know, reaching millions of people, yeah. revitalizing excitement for the manufacturing industry. I think that that's going to be a huge impact that continues to, you know, produce um, impact for years to come. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate the videos okay, well, and the work that goes into that, Sandy. Well, let me uh, let me give some credit here to the where credit is due. Um, when we first started tearing apart the very first Model 3, which was uh, about a year and a half uh, before um, we, we did the Model Y, um, Alistair, my son, he wanted us to, uh, to get it into YouTube. Um, I was uh, successfully talked out of that by all the engineers here because, after all, engineers don't care about, <laughs> care about YouTube. Now, when the Model Y started to show up, Corey Steuben, the guy who's the president now at Monroe, also about the same age as my son, he said we should start doing, you know, a YouTube channel. He invented the Monroe Live name. 
He's the one who filmed the first, uh, the first uh, videos basically on his, uh, his iPhone. We, we don't use anything but iPhones for, uh, for, for our, our, uh, our stuff. So this Monroe Live is a great legacy <laughs> for Monroe and Associates, but it, it's not mine. I, uh, I have to tell you, this is uh, something that came from the people around me. And that's what happens when you, I like to think that we, we have a pretty good company here. And I like to think that uh, this isn't the Sandy Monroe show. This is a, a group of, um, of really clever guys, that uh, guys and gals, that come together periodically to come up with new, exciting, and great new ideas. So it's not, it's not just me um, that, 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 that had to do with Monroe Live. If somebody has to get the, the, uh, the, the accolades, it would be Corey Steuben for making it happen, and, uh, and Alistair, my son, for uh, trying to get something to work. Uh, amen. I, you know, it's funny. This wasn't my idea. Zach, Zach is the one who deserves most of the credit for our digital media. Um, you know, he, tr he tricked me into the first whiteboard video that was never supposed to be published. He tricked me into doing it and it, and it went viral and, and, um, and, and now, and I trust his judgment on it. So there are many times where Zach suggests we do something content wise that I, if it was left up to me, I wouldn't do it. I would have never thought of it. I would have never come up with it, but he's, he's, he's generally right. So with that, uh, Sandy, let me ask you this as you know, we'll, we'll take it out with what is next for you? What, what's, uh, you know, what's next for Sandy Monroe and Monroe consulting? What's the, what's the next big step step in y'all's legacy? Okay. Well, I don't know if it's our legacy, but, um, our, uh, Tesla, Plaid shows up on Friday, tomorrow actually. You're gonna do the teardown, and well, first we're gonna do a road trip. So we're gonna go from here to Indianapolis to uh, Atlanta. Um, we're gonna go to Clemson University, I hope, um, and then come back up. Um, and I'm looking for assistance here. Where are we going after Clemson? Philly, Boston. Philly, Boston. Montreal. Oh yeah, Montreal, Toronto, and uh, London, and Windsor. So there's some, w w as we're going around, there's some places that I want to visit because there's some technology that I want to know more about. So Montreal, uh, and uh, Boston, and um, Toronto, and Windsor, um, they, all have, they all have some technologies I want to know about and they're, they're green and they're new and whatnot. And so that's, that's one thing. Um, I don't know if you saw the one on LA, the, the YouTube that we did when I was in LA. And I, I, I bought one of those Chinese cars and that's a really small company. Um, I was very impressed. It's got a great price. I wanna see what it's like. Um, we've purchased that. Um, I don't know when we're gonna get it, but we purchased that car and it's going to be coming here, and that's going to be a teardown, and that should shake uh, shake up the uh, the OEMs here in uh, North America and in and in Europe, right down to the core, because what I saw and what I heard is going to mean that somebody's going to be able to buy a car for a price that they can actually afford, and it'll be a good EV. And from but that's you know I'm a I'm, I'm hopeful, but skeptical. <laughs> I want to see for myself, right? Uh, just like Dr. Deming, uh, check it out for yourself. So that's kind of like what we see coming down the pike in the near future. And then in, in the distance, um, I'd like to, um, I actually think that uh, the, the, uh, the, next, the next level of transportation is a VTOL. So we designed an airplane, but unfortunately it was in 2008 and our uh, financial partner there was uh, Lehman Brothers. It didn't quite work out, <clears throat> as it were. So, um, but I, um, I, I'm very, very interested in trying to figure out how to get into that. I, I wanna, I, I think we need to have a third dimension in our lives. And- um, You're going and, up, Elon's going down, you're going up. Uh, no, actually, I think that Elon's uh, also going up, but he ain't telling anybody.
you don't, a good general keeps a few secrets. So that, I think, is what, uh, what he's doing. But that's, that's kind of uh, down the road. We'll see what happens. Awesome, man. I'm excited to see what you guys got. Um, for, for those in the community, may, if you're not subscribed to Monroe Live, uh, please do that now. We'll go ahead and we'll, <laughs> we'll link their channel in the description below. And uh, with that, hey, Sandy, I truly appreciate you taking the time with us. It's been uh, a pleasure and an honor, my man. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. I, I, I'm definitely going to have to look some more <laughs> into your background and whatnot. Um, I, I apologize for not knowing as much as uh, um, you know about me. Uh, I should have known more about you. But anyway, thank you, Walker. I appreciate it. About you, my man. That's that's exactly how Walker will go into interviews, uh, unprepared and just authentic, shoot from the hip. And uh, thanks yeah. again, Sandy. And thank you, Corey and everyone else at the team at Monroe and Associates. And uh, thanks for subscribing to Monroe Live. And uh, that'll wrap it up. Okay, thanks, Zach. Thank you very much.